This is the last of the three-part section on the doctrine of God. And in particular, today, I wanted to end with the Trinity. The Trinity is interesting um, because I think I know for, for myself and for others of you, I'm guessing, uh, it can be a bit ambiguous, um, a little bit unclear at times. I mean, it doesn't really make much sense, right, to say that one person or one one thing is also three or that three are also one. Like, math doesn't really seem to work that way. Um, but I guess my question is this. If your four-year-old, my daughter's about to be four, came up to you and said, well, do we worship three gods, right? I mean, what would you say? It seems like a valid question, right? Um what if someone came up to you, as someone has come up to me before, not here, and said, well, I mean, ultimately we know that God, our God and the God that Muslims worship is the same thing, right? So that's awesome, right? What do you say? Um, what if someone asks you, well, I heard that the Trinity was basically like water, ice, and steam, all three are H2O, and so like that's what... God and the Trinity are like, right? Is the Trinity, is the word Trinity in the Bible? It's not. And so what if someone comes up to you and says, well, it's not in the Bible, so if it's not in the Bible, I, don't, I, I only believe what's in the Bible, right? The question, I suppose, then is, well, isn't the Trinity just some like heady philosophical concept that some people made up because they didn't have anything else to do and they had way too much time on their hands, so they came up with these formulations. The question is, really, does it matter? And if so, why? Is it important? I am going to argue, obviously, that it is important and that it's vital for the church, our church included, to understand God And understanding God means understanding that God is triune. So uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, why it matters, how on earth we came up with this formulation, and my hope is that at the end of this, even if some of these things are beyond us, and frankly they are beyond me as well, everyone has said and agreed that the being of God is ultimately a mystery. We've said that several times over the past couple of weeks. My hope, though, is that when when we get to the end of this, if you're ever talking to someone like your kid or you're talking to a neighbor or a friend or a co-worker and they say, what's up with this Trinity thing in Christians? You know where to go and it's very simple. It's like, oh, I know exactly what I believe. I'll show you. So to lay some groundwork, Has the idea of the Trinity always been believed? Was it recently made up? Um, And I think there are three important things to understand. That after the ascension of Christ, from the very beginning of the church, three things were agreed upon by everybody, even if they disagreed on the status of Jesus, the relationship between Jesus and God. They all believed that the Trinity was worthy of Christian faith and worship. 
We should all believe that God is triune, and we should all worship the Trinity. They all agreed that God created the world out of nothing. They all agreed upon this. And finally, they all affirmed the lordship and primacy of Christ. Okay, So these are things they all agreed upon. What we're going to dive into is what did they disagree upon and why. So uh, before we really dive into it, uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for another opportunity to come together in relative safety and peace where we can hear your word proclaimed, where we can learn about who you are. And Father, I ask that you would help me to be clear and to say the truth about who you are from what you've revealed to us in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was about <clears throat> almost exactly 300 years after Christ had died, risen again, and ascended into heaven, that in Alexandria, Egypt, Alexandria was this hub for like New Age religion and stuff like this. It's kind of like San Francisco meets Boulder, Colorado, and like everyone legitimately is, you know, doing substances and coming up with weird ideas. In Alexandria, Egypt, Groups of Christians were gathering in groups and marching through the streets singing a hymn together. And part of the hymn they were singing said, There was when he was not. There was when he was not. It sounds kind of strange. What, what in the world are you talking about? Well, <clears throat> They were all being influenced, whose name was Arius. And Arius had come up with the notion that Jesus was somehow different than God the Father. Okay? So the, the concept is basically this. Here's God the Father, who we've spoken about the past couple of weeks, is the Creator. He created all things. Everything on this side of the line, God has created. And there is, as we said, a line or a distinction between the creation and the creator. The creator-creature distinction. God is completely apart or other than all the things he has made. The question for Arius was, and ultimately this huge debate or argument that will come about because of Arius is on what side of the line is the sun? What side of the line is Jesus on? For Arius, it was very simple. He's right there. He's right there. Because we know that the sun is begotten and that the father is unbegotten, and so it just makes sense that if the Father is unbegotten and Jesus is begotten, then at some point Jesus came into being because God created him. And so Jesus is on this side of the line. Now Arius would be saying, now, okay, let me clarify here. I'm not saying that he's way down here with us. Okay? He's like really close to the line. He's really high and exalted and really special but he's still a creation. He's not God. His logic kind of went like this. If the Father 
begot the Son, then the Son had a beginning. And if he had a beginning, that means there was when he was not. Well, who was when he was not? God was. Before he created the Son, there was God the Father. And he would be, he would be cautious here. He'd say, now I'm not saying there was a time when he was not. Because the Son is so exalted that God created him before time. That's how exalted Jesus is. But there was when he was not. Does that make sense? And we'll see that his arguments, he makes some arguments where it's like, huh, wow, how do I respond to that? If my neighbor comes up and says this to me, I don't really know if I'd have the answer for them. If the local Jehovah's Witness comes up to you, or the Mormons, I mean, they believe this too. Well, Arius ran into trouble in Alexandria because the bishop of Alexandria, conveniently named Alexander, Alexander of Alexandria was infuriated. He said, no, what you've done is you've demoted Christ by saying that he's not God. And so, he banned Arius from the Lord's table. He said, you cannot take communion here, because you are saying that Jesus is not God. And this set them on the path to what would be known as the Council of Nicaea. At the time, the Emperor Constantine had recently made Christianity a legal religion, which was huge, right? And the Emperor realized that Christianity, there's a possibility that this religion is going to tie everything together. Um, everyone's going to worship the same God. Um, there will, this will create a stable society, so I need this fixed. He's going to say, listen, it's not okay for some of you to say Jesus is God and for others of you to say, no, Jesus is not God. You need to agree on this, so I'm going to call a council at Nicaea and you're going to hash it out. Okay? This is what leads up to it. The question, though, for Arius was, what makes you think this? Why have you all of a sudden said that the Son is not God? And Arius would say, well, it's quite simple. It's biblical. I believe in the Bible. I believe it when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one in Deuteronomy. It doesn't say he's two. It doesn't say he's three. It says he's one. And so if he's one, then how can the Son be God? That would be two. I can do math. Right? It also says that Jesus is the only begotten. Well, if he's begotten, that means he came from somewhere. So that means God created him. You may be starting to see here that we still look back at Arius as the arch heretic, right? He said Jesus isn't God and created this huge issue. But if you were to ask Arius, he would say, I'm trying to protect the honor and dignity of God. You can't worship two gods. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God. And so Jesus can't be God, right? Arius looked at things like Proverbs 8.22. This is a, this, they, at the time, they were using the Septuagint, 
the Greek version of the scriptures. And there was, we even say that Jesus is the wisdom of God, right? And in Proverbs, I'm sure you've read, um, that it speaks about wisdom being with him in the beginning. Through wisdom, he created the earth. And he, reading the Greek translation, which ended up being a poor translation, of Proverbs reads, the Lord created me, wisdom, as the beginning of his ways, for the sake of his works of old, before the mountains were established and before all the hills, he begot me. So Arius would look at this and say, see, he's begotten. In the beginning, he was created. He also pointed to John 14, 28, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples and saying, I'm going away. I'm leaving you. And if you loved me, you would be happy about this. You would be rejoicing. I'm going back to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. See? I told you, Arius would say. He'd also point to passages like Luke, when Jesus is growing up. Jesus grows in knowledge, and he grows in stature. And he'd say, well, that sounds like a creation to me. That doesn't sound like the Creator God. The Creator God doesn't grow in knowledge and stature. Or finally, he would look at something like Jesus getting tired when he's speaking to the woman at the well and needing water, right? Or he says, I'm thirsty. He says, again, that's not the Creator God. We see here, Arius would say, that Jesus is a creation. He's not the same as God. The second thing, really, I think that uh, affected Arius was that his way of the way, when he looked at Scripture, he would read a passage like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and then take that and say, Well, logically, what does that have to mean? What does that mean for me? If God is perfect, He's transcendent, He's unchanging. He's the creator of all things, all things we've spoken about for the past couple of weeks, right? Then it makes sense that everything else in the universe, everything else is apart from God somehow. And so even though Jesus is the firstborn, even though he's highly exalted, even though he was somehow involved in creation, and somehow he's involved in our redemption, he is other than God. He's created. He's not uniquely divine, Arius would say. And so his logic keeps leading him on, well, if he's a creation like you and I, even though he's exalted, that means he can change. And if he can change, that means he could sin. And if he can sin, that means, well, maybe we can't rely upon him, right? This is the logic if you keep pulling it out. He didn't say that. But he did say that Christ, as a creation, could not have full knowledge of God because he's a creation, right? We talked about that. The distinction, we can't know God in himself. Do you see at this point the trouble that is coming out of Alexander. I mean, people are furious over this. Some people are excited about this. What is going to happen? 
What would happen if somebody came to your house, knocked on your door, and said, I got some good news. We only worship one God, and Jesus isn't God. They probably come to your house once a year, dressed up in ties and stuff like that. So, where does this lead? This leads to the Council of Nicaea, as I mentioned. In 325, I really like this board. In 325, the Emperor Constantine calls a council at Nicaea. And... uh, Bishops from all over, pastors from all over, came to the Council of Nicaea to decide what in the world are we going to do about this. A later account says that even St. Nicholas was there, Santa Claus, Father Christmas was there. Uh, I think this is probably a good point before we move on. I'm going to, to see if there's any questions. I am, I'm trying to show you why this is serious. And by showing you why this is serious, I tell you exactly what he thought and we're kind of fair with him, right? Hey, this is what he thought. He wasn't trying to uh, demolish Christianity. He thought he was doing something great. He thought he was defending God. Are there any questions? If there are no questions, that means I did my job properly so far. Yes, ma'am. What did you do do with passages like I and the Father are one? Um, What did you do with passages that tell us that that Christ in Philippians 2 gave up certain things to come to earth? You know, we see that, that God... Jesus, the God-man, so how did he handle the whole God-man issue? Uh, That's a great question. Um, If if you couldn't hear, the question is, how did he handle other passages in Scripture that seem to say that God is one with the Father? And, And we will look at those because his opponents at the Council of Nicaea brought in these passages, and they're like, whoa, you're way off base. You obviously didn't keep reading. You haven't looked at the scope of Scripture. I think that... The easiest way to answer that is to say that he looked at Scripture, and you may know people who do this, and say, this verse right here tells me so. And so it can't be any other way. This this verse, maybe even taken out of context, um, says that X, Y, or Z, so it has to be this way. Even though it's like, well, have you measured that up with the other parts of Scripture? Have you balanced it with that? And I think that the answer ultimately for him was that no, he had not done that. This is, this is the earliest form, I think, of biblicism that I know of. All right? Yeah. And, and then here in a couple minutes, we will come back to those other passages and how people refuted him. Anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's push. Um, It was May 20th, um, 1855. We just jumped 
like 1,200 years. Uh, Leading up to the Civil War, when Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts gave an address on the House of the Senate, and he absolutely eviscerated the South over the issue of Kansas possibly becoming a state. Because there was all this violence happening in Kansas over slavery, some people fighting to make it a slave state, some people fighting to not allow it in unless it was a free state. And he used incredibly strong language. He said, this is not any common lust for power. It is the rape of a virgin territory, compelling it to the hateful embrace of slavery, And it may be clearly traced to a depraved desire for a new slave state. And he went on. And I mean, he used some pretty explicit language to explain what these slave owners were doing to try, not only to their slaves, but to the territory itself to try to bring it into the South or into the Union as a slave state. Well, one of the people that he disrespected in his speech had a cousin And his cousin happened to be a representative from South Carolina who was furious. So two days later, Representative Preston Brooks from South Carolina, from the South, walked up to Senator Sumner on the floor of the Senate in front of other people, carrying his walking cane, and said, Mr. Sumner, I have read your speech twice over carefully. It is libel on South Carolina and Mr. Butler who was a relative of mine. And then he proceeded in front of a crowd of senators to beat him with a cane so severely that Senator Sumner was not able to return to his duties for three years. He suffered debilitating headaches for the rest of his life. And a lot of historians look at this as the watershed moment where any sort of helpful dialogue had completely broken down. People were so angry over slavery, over states' rights, that it came to violence, and it's like, it can't be fixed. I say this because emotions were similarly very high at Nicaea. Thirteen years before the Council of Nicaea in 325, uh, Christianity had been made the illegal religion. Six or seven years before that, there was an empire-wide persecution under the emperor Diocletian. And so some of the bishops and the pastors at the Council of Nicaea were disfigured. They had been tortured. Um, they had been beaten for the gospel. And so they were very emotional about this. What is happening? And what's interesting is that you know, the, the emperor of Rome had tried to kill them for believing in Christ only a couple of decades before. Now the emperor Constantine, who himself, he at least calls himself a Christian, is at the council. And when the pastors walk in, he gives them hugs, and he bows to them, and he treats them with great respect. It's like a complete shift in our world. Well, Arius is also very passionate about Jesus not being God. And so he's standing up, and he's giving his uh, testimony to the emperor. And he had turned his doctrine into a song, into like a praise and worship song. And this is what he said to the emperor in front of everyone. The uncreated God has made the sun, a beginning of things created, 
and by adoption has God made the Son into an advancement of Himself. Yet the Son's substance is removed from the substance of the Father. The Son is not equal to the Father, nor does He share the same substance. God is the all-wise Father, and the Son is the teacher of His mysteries, but the members of the Holy Trinity share unequal glories. I mean, He just comes out and says it. And later accounts say that in the audience, St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, is listening to this, and he is livid. So angry that he gets up, walks over to Arius, and slaps him in the face. (laughs) Now, whether that actually happened is debatable. The point is this. Historians looking back at the Council of Nicaea realized that this was a crucial moment in the history of the church. People were very disturbed over this. What are you doing to Christ? Who is Christ? Is he God? By the way, this book by Mark Knoll, it's turning points. It's really well written and it's it's got a bunch of different points during church history that if you're interested in church history... I think it's helpful. They came at Arius hard. The the pastors at Nicaea who believed in the divinity of Christ, we'll call them the Nicene Christians, they came at him with three arguments. The first argument was biblical. The second was logical. And the third had to do with the general worship of the church. And the argument that they brought against Arius, the biblical argument, was that he was reading passages, and while he was reading the Bible, he was reading meaning into it that wasn't actually there. He was distorting what Scripture actually said. They said, okay, you you pointed to Proverbs 8.22, but if you keep reading to Proverbs 8.30, wisdom speaks again and says, Then I, wisdom, was beside him, God the Father, like a master workman, and I was daily, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. They say, see, wisdom's with him all the time. Or they point to John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. How do you get around that? Philippians 2.6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus, the Son, is the exact imprint of God's nature. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says that Jesus, the Son, shares the divine glory of God, the Father. And of course, Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And they may have mentioned these passages as well, but we can even think about this and say, well, the Jews weren't confused about who Jesus said he was. They knew exactly who Jesus was saying who he was. Uh, John 5.18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because they knew he was making himself equal to God. Or John 8.55, right, where Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. And they said, you're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham? What are you talking about? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. And it says, the ESV says, they picked up rocks to throw at him. That sounds so tame, you know what I mean? Like, I, I pick up rocks and like throw them at stuff, you know, who cares? No, imagine like they pick up cinder blocks because they're going to murder him on the spot. Because he's just said that he is the I am. This is what the the Nicene Christians came back to Arius and said, you've missed the point here. You have selectively picked out scriptures that say what they mean, uh, and you've said what you think they mean, while at the same time you've ignored all these other passages that tell us who God really is, and that the Father and the Son are both divine. Next, they had a logical argument, right? If Christ was not truly God, then he could not bestow life upon us. He could not give us repentance. He could not free us from our sin if he was not God. And we know that this work of salvation, it's at the heart of the Scriptures. It's at the heart of our faith. Ultimately, they were saying, unless Christ is truly God, we have to lose hope. We can't believe Paul in 2 Corinthians when he says that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Well, if he's not God, how do we become God's righteousness through Christ? How does he do that for us if he's not God? Finally, and this, this one I picked up from this Mark Knoll book, I'd, I'd never heard this argument before, but it makes sense, that really it came down for a lot of Christians in the pews to just common sense. Why was it common sense? Well, since, since the gospel first came to them, they always prayed to God in Christ's name. We only can communicate to God through Christ. And so if Christ isn't God... Can we even communicate with God? Baptism had always taken place in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the hymns that they sang in church praised Jesus as the Savior, who was from God and of God, and who restored us to God. So they were singing hymns. Um... They baptized in the name of the Trinity. They prayed in Jesus' name. It doesn't make any sense. They instinctively knew that Jesus was God. And so at the Council of Nicaea, ultimately Arius lost, and he was excommunicated from the church. And the result was that they agreed upon certain basic things about the relationship between God and Jesus. And I am going to highlight four of these things for you, I suppose, now. First, 
They said Christ is true God from true God. Jesus is God in the same way that the Father is God. They are both God. Jesus is true God from true God. Second, the Son, Christ, is begotten. We have to affirm that from you know, John 3.16. He's begotten, but He's not made. So we would say, they would say, He is eternally begotten. From all time, as long as God has existed, which is forever, the Son has been eternally begotten. Christ became human for us humans and for our salvation. Um, He didn't become human because God at some point said, I'm going to create the Son and I'm going to send Him to help out these people. No, Christ became human for us. He Himself did it. And finally, and this is one that we can talk about for just a second because it leads us on, Christ is, this might be the last time I flip the board, Christ is consubstantial with the Father. Con, substantial. Jesus has, or the Son has, the same substance as the Father. What that means is, okay, so what makes me a person? Um, if I cut my hair and I lose some hair, do I cease to be a person? Do I cease to be myself? No, I don't. What if I cut my fingernails? Do I cease to be myself? No, because fingernails are not what makes me me, right? Um, What if I lose a limb? What they're saying is that Jesus, the, the Son, and the Father share the same substance. They're different persons, but they share the same substance. Um... And they used a Greek word, again, that wasn't in the Bible, to say substance, right? Um, homo, usius, homo, right? Same. Homo, usios. It's like the same alphabet. Homo means the same, usios means es- essence. Jesus is the same essence as the Father. And they got pushback on this again. Well, that word's not in the Bible. So you can't use that word. I only want words that I can see in the Bible, and if you can't show it to me in the Bible, I'm not going to accept it. And this was an argument that went back and forth for decades. Um, and again, they were, they were having to deal with, and, and we still, I mean, these are things that we wrestle with, I mean, I wrestle with myself. To what extent... Do we rely upon the Bible exclusively versus looking to outside sources of wisdom and assistance in understanding Scripture? Right? Point number three, Athanasius against the world. I'm going to speed up at this point. Athanasius was also 
at the Council of Nicaea. And over the next 30 years, he became the pastor in Alexandria. And he fought tooth and nail for the doctrine of the Trinity. Because at one point, the emperor himself decided that he liked Arius and decided that Jesus wasn't God. So he said, no, the entire empire now no longer worships Jesus as God. And so, I mean, Athanasius risked his life. He was exiled from his church, from his city, and from his country five times because he wanted to fight for... I mean, you had people that said, no, he's not the same homo usios. He's not the same essence. Other people said, if you just fit in an I here, a Yoda, it says homoio usios. That means similar. He's kind of like God, right? So just insert this little bitty I and we're good. And again, Athanasius is like, no, I am not going to accept that. Jesus Christ is exactly the same in essence as the Father. And we worship him because he's God. Ultimately, at the Council of Constantinople about, what is this, 76 years later? No. I'm not going to do math in front of you. Over, over, the, over the interim period, people have, had also begun to question, well, is the Holy Spirit God? Council of Constantinople, they reaffirmed what they had agreed upon at Nicaea, and they added a section to what they had written, saying that the Holy Spirit is also divine, that He is God. And in your handout, does anyone need a handout? In your handout, on point number five, page number three, I actually have for you what they wrote 1,700 years ago. Which is interesting. There's really very, very little that we agree upon with, say, the Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or maybe even Anglican. But there's one thing that we agree upon, and that's this. The Trinity and the divinity of Christ. Um, and, and this is really the place that's turned to by Christians over the millennia. If you want to know who Jesus is, they already did the work. The biblical scholars already looked at all the data, and they're saying this is who Jesus is. I'm going to read it for you. I believe in one the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And, I believe, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic means universal. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So what is the takeaway? Is this helpful? Is this random historical facts? Or is there something here? Well, I, I believe, and I think m- most church historians at least would agree, and I think probably most pastors, that there is a huge wealth of benefit for the individual believer and for the life of the church in knowing the Nicene Creed and who God and the Trinity are. First, it's a secure foundation for our theology, for our worship and our prayer. If you had to redefine or reformulate who God is without having any guidance from the outside and you just took your Bible and sat down with your coffee one morning, could you do it? Could you avoid the pitfalls that Arius fell into? I I would hope, by God's grace, I could, but thankfully I don't have to worry about it because I've been given uh, a pastor of my local church. And we've been given faithful church fathers over thousands of years who have known the Scripture, who have cared about it, and who fought for it. It stands against, the Nicene Creed stands against the human tendency or the human desire to prefer logical deductions about what God must be like and how He must act. It stands against me taking my Bible saying, oh, this verse out of context makes sense to me. God must be like this because I understand what this is like. And so if I feel this way, God must feel this way. If it makes sense to me, it, God must have to fit into my paradigm. You'll see that, I mean, even saying that God is one, but there's three persons and the three persons share the same essence, we can say that and we can kind of understand that. But there comes a certain point where that exceeds the wisdom of you and I. What does that mean? I don't know. And I I think there's a possibility that as creations, we'll get to heaven. And I, I still wonder if we're really going to know what is the exact relationship between the Son and the Father? Will we be able to comprehend that? I don't know. It restates the Council of Nicaea and it reminds us about Christ's divine nature and what He's done for us. And can we ever really be reminded of that enough? The answer, I think, is no, we can't. 
it's a great example of when the church came together and they stood for the wisdom of God rather than the wisdom of man. Um, and this is huge. I mean, they risked their lives. Some of them were kicked out of their country. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to imagine this. Um, but this is what they went through to maintain the doctrine of God. If it wasn't for them, and I, I know that we don't do like counterfactuals, but would we even worship Christ as divine? And if you don't worship Christ as divine, you've lost Christianity. Finally, and I, I mentioned this, it, it helps us remember that we aren't alone, that we are not alone, um, that we stand on the shoulders of, of faithful believers who have gone before us. In part, we, we rely with the Spirit's help on the wisdom of those who've come before us in helping us understand the Scriptures and our faith. What about the Trinity, though, in daily life, in the Christian life? Does it matter there? Or is this just a list of facts? Um, well, obviously, I think that it matters greatly. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking to you. Um, turn to Ephesians 1, please. If you, if you have a Bible with you, if not, not a problem. Very briefly, Ephesians 1. Three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. There's the Father. He's chosen you before the foundation of the world. He has predestined you for adoption in Christ. And He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. That's the Son. The Son has redeemed us with His blood. He's forgiven your sins and mine. He has accomplished the work that the Father sent Him to do. Um, he has revealed to us the mysteries of God's will. And He has united us to God. And remember what we confess about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are God. Fully God. And finally, and this is the one that I, I think, for today at least, 
is the one that I, I really kind of want to think about for just a minute. Verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, we have just seen that every Christian believes that the Spirit is God. God's Holy Spirit is God. And Ephesians tells us that when you believed in the Gospel, you were sealed with that promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your salvation, of your inheritance, until you actually acquire it at the end. The Spirit seals us. The Spirit guarantees your salvation. And Romans 8 will tell us that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Do we really think about that? Do I think about that? I was thinking about that the past day or two. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, God Himself has taken up residence in you. And Romans tells us that this is also the guarantee that you and I will be raised. We've died a a death like Christ's, We will be raised to a new life because of the Spirit in us, that guarantee. Which is incredibly encouraging. Because not only have we been justified by faith, right? But it's not like we're justified by faith And that's the first good thing. Like, yeah, you need that, right? And now there's a whole lifetime of like, you know, meet this quota, be this tall to ride the ride, Um, do these things, or else maybe you're not justified, maybe I'll take it away, maybe blah, 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 blah. When you believed, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God resides within you. So God, for God, you are holy. We struggle with sin in this life. We we desire to become more like Him. But the reality is that in God's eyes, the righteousness and the holiness of God have been given to you when you believed. And so, I love this Psalm 17. You don't have to turn there. At the end of Psalm 17, I think that we can pray this with the psalmist. He's been speaking about the wicked. 
and those who don't believe or trust in God around him and how it seems like everything is going awesome for them. You know, they have they have their offspring and they have their 401k and they pass it on to their kids and they go to Maui on vacation. Is that somewhere you go? I don't. And he, he even, but, but he says at the end, he says, but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. So the encouragement, I think, is that understanding, one of the encouragements, is that understanding who God is and how the persons of the Trinity work to bring about our salvation and God's glorification, and ultimately ours, is incredibly helpful and encouraging, and it's the rock upon which we build our, our, our religious life, our faith. Everything is built upon who God is. We need to take our eyes off of you know, the navel-gazing. Well, I, I think I read my Bible enough this week, but it didn't really make me feel you know, like I should feel. And when we sang that song last Sunday, I mean, usually I feel awesome. But I didn't really feel that way this time. Is this something that I need to be worried about? I think that it would be helpful if we begin to think more about who God is and what he's done for us and less about the, the, the frail, weak, Thing that we are. He knew that already. It says that he won't break a bruised reed. He won't put out a smoldering wick. He cares for us. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. And since I'm running out of time, um, I'm going to end with this. So even though the Emperor Constantine, oh, you may be happy, well, not happy, uh, Arius, after the Council of Nicaea, was excommunicated. But then the Emperor, a different Emperor, himself became Arian. So he invited Arius back. And he said, come on back. Why don't you leave this church? Um, and the night before Arius was to be reinstated, uh, he, he had a hemorrhage and died a pretty gruesome death the evening before he was supposed to become the pastor of this church. And it's interesting to know that, I mean, people looked at this for the next 500, 600 years as like evidence, like, no, God dealt with him. <laughs> um, that's what happened to Arius. I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. But that's in the Roman Empire. Just a little bit off to the east over here. Well, my map's not there. Christians were still being persecuted in the Persian Empire. And this was written, this is a prayer, I'll end with this prayer by reading it. Um, there was an official in, in the court of the king of Persia who had become a Christian. His name was Gustazad. But because there was so much persecution, persecution Gustazad left the faith. He was afraid. And at some point, his pastor, whose name was Simeon, came and found him 
and preached the gospel to him and brought him back to the church. And not long after, Gustazad was imprisoned and then martyred for his faith. And the day after he was killed, his pastor, Simeon, was also killed. And I think this is a beautiful prayer, and this is what Gustazad wrote shortly before he was martyred for the faith. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. I was a lost sheep, and you brought me back. I had strayed from your holy fold, and by the exertions of that most capable of your, ser- your shepherds, Simeon, you found out where I was. He went out to look for me, and he put me with those of your sheep that had been fattened for the slaughter. I was to be a son of the apostles, a brother to the martyrs who had received the garland in the west, a good example to your people in the east. Let them not fall away. Let them not lose the true faith, faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the truly existing, the glorious King, whom all that worship the Holy Trinity in heaven and on earth confess and ever will confess age after age. Amen.